according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to John chapter 1 as we get started this morning. John chapter 1. We are continuing our Life of Christ series. This is our fourth class, I believe. Last week we looked at Luke's introduction. The material from Luke 1, 1 through 4. This week we're going to look at the pre-incarnation work of Christ. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. So turn to John 1 as we get started. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to assure that we are filled with the Spirit and equipped to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we are thankful this morning once again to have the privilege and blessing, the opportunity to assemble together in the name of Jesus Christ and receive instruction. Father, as we go back in study to eternity past, we pray that you would guide our minds in this study, that you would allow for our finite understanding to grasp hold of the infinite. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. I mentioned last week that this uh, class may actually challenge us a bit because we are finite in our thinking, we, uh, uh, that is, in our human thinking. Each one of us had a beginning. It may have been some time ago, but whenever it was, we had one. And uh, we've been marking the, marking the years ever since. It's hard for us, being the finite creatures that we are, to conceive of a time before time, to think of eternity past. We can think of eternity future maybe a little bit better, because that's just kind of forward forever in that forward direction. But thinking back forward or in reverse forever is a little bit harder to, uh, to conceive. This was the material that we had last week, and I'll just skip over that. There we are. The pre-incarnation work of Christ, John 1, 1 through 18. I should have made a note. There we are, slide 12. I usually like to leave little cheat notes for myself here so I know what slide I'm looking at. There we go. <laughs> in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. This is the introduction to the Gospel of John, and uh, the actual material we're going to cover in the course of this study is going to take us down through verse 18. Very important that we, uh, that we grasp some of the things that are included here, not just for our Life of Christ study, but for the overall understanding of what God is doing in the Bible, an overall understanding of God's plan and purpose of the ages. Um, I think it's an immature view to view the Bible as basically being the plan of redemption, although huge churches and areas of study will focus on redemption as being the centerpiece of God's plan. In reality, the centerpiece of God's plan is the glory of Jesus Christ. But the centerpiece of Jesus Christ was the glorification of the Father. They served to spotlight one another. And if we can get a better handle on God's glory, we can get a better handle on what God is revealing, I think we can do much better with these things. Alright? First of all, we want to understand, under point one, that the Gospel of John begins with an in the beginning that precedes the Genesis 1-1 in the beginning. We want to understand what order these beginnings come in. And that the John 1-1 in the beginning precedes the Genesis 1-1 in the beginning. If you want to just simply hold your finger there at John 1 and look back to Genesis 1, 
I mean, these are all pretty obvious. And uh, I like the fact that they're easy to find, and easy to, to look at with your own eyes, easy to put your finger on it. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So we realize this is a creation beginning. The remainder of this chapter uh, details the day-by-day account of creation. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness He called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, one day. It's interesting, when you uh, do a breakdown on Genesis chapter 1, and you look at the words for creation, the word bara, to create out of nothing, the word asa, to form or fashion or to make out of pre-existing materials, uh, it's quite remarkable to see that the actual creation, the, the bara that occurs, is mentioned in verse 1, but then it is not mentioned again <coughs> until a uh, significant period of time down much lower. And some of this leads us to understand that what we have outlined for us in Genesis 1 is not actually the very first creation ever. And I hope we can understand that. That verse 1 stands on its own and a period of time goes by before we are then introduced to verse 2. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That statement stands alone. That statement stands... Uh, for its own, on its own merits, in its own factual context. Then verse 2, the earth was formless and void. There is no indication in this context that verse 1 and verse 2, had, there's, there's no time relation between verse 1 and verse 2. None at all. They're just declarative statements. And they can happen immediately, one right after another. They, uh, they could happen with an extended period of time in between verses 1 and 2. Grammatically, there's no clue in this context what we're dealing with. Other than, I think, the biggest clue is the fact that bara does not happen until significantly further down in, uh, in this context. Now, I'm getting back to John 1. We're going to do a few side trips this morning just so you can see some issues for what they are. When you turn over to Genesis chapter 2, or let me just uh, even back up even more than that. As we look through the different days that are rendered here, in verse 26 of chapter 1, God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, singular. Male and female, he created them, I hope we can understand that Genesis chapter 1 is, is big picture. Genesis chapter 1 is giving us creation, but as it pertains to man, the whole pinnacle of the Genesis 1 creation account is focusing in on man. There are other things that preceded. There's the day 1, day 2, day 3, all the way to day 6, and even day 6 has other items, including the living creatures, the beasts, and so forth. But the pinnacle is on day 6 is man. With, with the creation of man and the blessing of man. It's at this point when the blessing actually uh, pours forth. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Man is created and man is given work and man is blessed. Alright? 
This is the focus in Genesis chapter 1. It's, it's, it's the description of creation as oriented to the creation of man, the blessing of man, the establishment of man's work upon this earth. We can observe very quickly that chapter 1 doesn't give us all the details. <laughs> Some people want chapter 1 to give us all the details, but it doesn't. In fact, it's painting with a very broad brush, which we understand from the description in verse 27, male and female, he created them, and that's rather, rather a broad brush in its, in its description. Chapter 2 then takes us back in a more finely detailed description, describing these things. Now you'll notice that uh, through all of the, uh, the process here, we understand the male and female, he created them, but when we get to chapter 2, we realize that male came first. <laughs> and that significant time went by. How long? We don't know. But long enough for man to be placed in the garden, for uh, out of the ground the Lord caused to grow every tree that is pleasing, it says in verse 9 of chapter 2, that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, and the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then we have flowing rivers. We have geography that's mentioned. We have the, the mineral resources that are mentioned in verse uh, 11 and 12 and 13. All right. Then in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. The word there, shamar, to keep or to guard. Then uh, the instructions that's given. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Interesting that the command was given to man prior to the woman being uh, formed and prior to the woman being given to the man. Then the naming process that happens. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The, the uh, fact that God did not name the animals, but created the animals and then delegated Adam with naming responsibilities is very important. It shows the sovereignty, the delegated sovereignty, the stewardship responsibilities that Adam was vested in. Remember, uh, we've been talking about stewardship quite a bit in our 1 Corinthians class, dealing with the uh, stewardship that's presented there in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Here we're seeing Adam's stewardship that's given to him. So the man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. However long this period of time went by, we don't know. But for whatever length of time it was, Adam fulfilled his stewardship responsibilities. He named the animals. And uh, evidently, it was a long enough process for him to identify the, the male-female operation that was happening there with those animals. <laughs> All right? Long enough for him to recognize, wait a minute. You know, he, he saw the animal activity here, he recognized the male and female, and he recognized his own missing partner. All right? So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. He took one of his ribs, and we understand how this process worked. He took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. See, just like he created the animals and brought the animals to the man, now he creates Eve and brings her to the man. Delegated stewardship responsibilities. 
And just as Adam named all the animals, Adam now names the woman. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam had a logical thought process included in everything that he named. We're not privy to what that thought process was, but he understood God's purpose and what God did. He understood that she was taken out of man. He understood that this was a work of God for his benefit. And so he names her accordingly. All of this now, this is just background. This is just to show you that there are um, gaps, as it were. And I use that word intentionally because it's a very important concept and yet it's one that's mocked. All right? There are gaps. If you understand chapter 2 and recognize that time was needed to recognize something being missing, <laughs> it took time for Adam to realize he needed Eve. And then God provided based upon Adam's recognition of need. That's a very important concept. So, when we look back to chapter 1 now, we look at verse 27. God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. We realize that there's a gap in verse 27. We realize that the verse itself doesn't give any clue to, the, to it, but corroborating scriptures elsewhere make it, make it clear. Okay? So we can understand that verse 27 back in chapter 1 is a, is, a, is a big picture verse. It paints the big picture. God created Adam and Eve, male and female. That's a big picture verse. The details for that come in chapter 2. Alright? So with that concept being obvious, then we can glance back to verse 1 and verse 2. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We realize that's a big picture verse. That's a big picture verse. That, that just shows the big picture of what had happened. Now, is there a gap in verse 1 and is there a gap in between verse 1 and 2? Well, this text here may not give us an indication one way or the other, but other scriptures certainly will. Alright? Other scriptures certainly will. So join me in Isaiah 45. I'm a left-handed flipper again this morning, so you all should beat me there. Isaiah 45. At verse 18, Isaiah 45, 18. Oh, you know what? I want to go somewhere else first. Hold your finger there and go to Job 38. Job 38. We'll get to Isaiah 45 in a moment. But Job 38. And... Uh, the rebuke that occurs here, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you and you instruct me. This is scathing rebuke upon Job with a fair amount of uh, sarcasm mixed in. I hope you can understand this because we're about to get a whole dose of it in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. So I'm, I'm hoping that I can accurately and effectively teach sarcasm. I think I'll be able to do it appropriately just because sarcasm is a part of my personality anyway. Here's, a, here's an opportunity where my own personality flaws can become useful in teaching Scripture. But this passage is dripping with it, and it becomes communicative when it's used appropriately. 
He says, all right, since you're so high and mighty and you know all these things, go ahead, you teach Bible class. I'll be the student. Job, you're the God, you teach me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? Now this is all pertaining to the creation of the earth. And so as such, we recognize this passage relates to Genesis 1.1 where it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But we recognize also in this verse that there was an audience to witness it. Because of verse 7, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Alright, this verse and elsewhere relating to the angelic realm, primarily in the Psalms, but this is an easy verse to spot to recognize that God had an audience when He created the earth. God had a choir, in fact, when He created the earth. The morning stars being the angelic choir. Sons of God, reference to all the angelic realm but morning stars in particular related to the angelic choir. And when he created the earth, he had an audience to witness that this was something special. This was something amazing, something beautiful, something to praise God for. So, we understand we have other scripture now that helps us to fill in the details of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the heavens there being the galaxies, the universe, the created realm of the universe, including all the stars, the galaxies, the planets, the moons, the asteroids, everything that's there, okay, except something was missing. Something was missing. And however long that period of time went by in between God created the heavens and the earth, a period of time went by to where the angels then recognized something was missing. Just like Adam recognized, you know, something's missing. In Adam's case, it was Eve. (laughs) Alright? In the angel's case, they are the hosts of heaven. They were created. They filled out the universe. They, you know, spanned the galaxies and saw the planets and the worlds and the moons and all the things. And yet recognized, you know, something's missing. So God gathers them around and says, alright, now watch this. And He creates the earth which launches the, the, morning, uh, the morning star choir and the angels shouting for joy and the, the great celebration of what God had done in creating the earth. The uh, evolutionists, by the way, the uniformitarians today, by the way, don't want to credit the earth as being unique in any way. There's nothing special about us. We're just, you know, one planet among billions and, and the, with the billions and billions of stars that are out there and the billions and billions of planets that are out there, certainly we're going to find life somewhere. We can't be so prideful to think that we're the only life, intelligent life in the universe. We just have to go and find it somewhere. See, that's their theory anyway. Because, obviously, if we randomly mutated by chance and became a life form on this planet, then out there somewhere else there's got to be something else that randomly mutated by chance and became life on their planet, and so forth. The evolutionist, since he denies God, has to deny the unique nature of the earth and the unique nature of man upon the earth, which is why they exalt the creature and deny the creator and the things that are involved there. Now, why am I taking the time to, to, to focus on all this? Because this is where the work of Jesus Christ came in prior to His incarnation in the physical body born of a virgin in the manger of, of Bethlehem. All right? Very important to understand this as it relates to John chapter 1. So, the Genesis 1-1 beginning is, is a great beginning. 
as it pertains to man, as it pertains to the the restoration of the earth and the, and the establishment of man and the stewardship of man and the responsibilities that then come down to us today. But it is not the beginning. And I'm hoping we can make that clear. I've shown now, just by looking at Genesis 1, how you can spot a gap in verse 27 very easily by looking over at Genesis chapter 2. And I hope you wrote these things down. I'm hoping also that you can look at Genesis 1.1 and see a gap in between heavens and earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you can find a gap within Genesis 1.1 by looking to Job 38.7. Now, the third gap I'm going to show you this morning is the gap in between Genesis 1.1 and the Genesis 1.2. Because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a sentence that stands all on its own. And the earth was formless and void. That's an ugly circumstance. Why? What happened to make it that way? <laughs> It was not that way from the beginning. Because had it been that way from the beginning, why would the angels have celebrated? (laughs) Why would the morning stars have sung? Why would the sons of God shout it for joy and said, Oh, hip, hip, hooray, look at this formless and void hunk. (laughs) You know, this lump of goo, what is this? This formless and void. Formless and void would have hardly been reason to celebrate. No, the earth as it was created was gorgeous. It was beautiful. And for this third gap now, uh, now we look at our, our Isaiah 45 passage that I asked you to turn to a moment ago. I'm just showing you the, the different gaps in Genesis 1. The Genesis 1.27 gap, where it says male and female, he created them. You can find evidence for that gap in Genesis 2, the whole detail of how Adam was created and needed Eve and all that. The Genesis 1.1 gap, the, the, the distinction between creating the heavens and the earth and why the earth was so unique. And now I'm showing you the Genesis 1.2 gap. That is the gap in between verse 1 and verse 2. Why? What happened to make it formless and void? Alright, in Isaiah 45:18 it says, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens. Notice that that's a separate creative event. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. Two activities that pertain to the earth. He established it and did not create it a waste place. This is the same as void. You have tohu wabohu in, in Genesis 1-2, and we have this here. He, cre- he established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. Alright? So Isaiah 45-18 tells us that God did not create it formless and void. And yet that's what we see in Genesis 1-2. And so, these are the passages you look at and compare and and compile to come up with the understanding that something happened in between verse 1 and verse 2 to make it formless and void. This being what we conclude to be the angelic rebellion, the fall of the angelic realm, and the warfare that then followed. We have this in Genesis, or in uh, the fall of Satan in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, and then a very overlooked passage in Jeremiah chapter 4. Jeremiah chapter 4. And (coughs) verse 23. Jeremiah, in the context of this chapter, is anticipating the destruction of Jerusalem. 
he is within Jerusalem itself. The, the forces of, of Nebuchadnezzar are coming and they're going to lay Jerusalem waste. They're going to destroy the temple. They're going to carry the people into captivity. Many prophets had anticipated that, but Jeremiah was actually the, the witness on the scene when it happened. And in verse 19, My soul, my soul, I am in anguish, O my heart. My heart is pounding in me. I cannot be silent because you have heard, O my soul, the sound of the trumpet and the alarm of war. And he knows that this is coming around. He knows that it's imminent now. Um, how long, it says in verse 21, How long must I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? For my people are foolish. They know me not. He has just shifted from himself to now speaking for the Lord in the first person. My people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are shrewd to do evil, but to do good they do not know. Speaking on behalf of the Lord. Now, there was, that's, that's a very important shift right there that happens when he goes from speaking for himself to speaking for the Lord. Very important. And a lot of people miss that when they get to verses 23 and following. Because Jeremiah has just gone beyond the realm of the immediate circumstances of Jerusalem in the fall when Babylon destroys it to a much larger picture in the angelic past. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was tohu wabohu, formless and void. Jeremiah 4.23 is the only other place in all of the Bible that features the phrase tohu wabohu, such as we have in Genesis 1.2. The earth was formless and void. Genesis 1-2, Jeremiah 4-23, the only places that have that exact phrase in this precise construction, tohu wabohu. I looked on the earth and behold, it was formless and void. See, Jeremiah gets the prophetic view of what happened to make it, Genesis 1-2. And to the heavens and they had no light. Remember, the destruction of the angelic earth darkened everything. That's why the first thing that happens when God restores the earth, he says, let there be light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man. And all the birds of the heavens had fled. The uh, earthly angelic residents and the universal angelic residents all affected by God's judgment upon the angelic realm. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a wilderness, and all its cities were pulled down. All its cities were pulled down. This is a worldwide destruction here. Not just the local destruction of Jerusalem, not just the local conquering of Judah by Nebuchadnezzar, but this is actually worldwide in its scope, and he's looking back to this event. All its cities were pulled down before the Lord, before his fierce anger. All right? Just a few passages to show you that there's a lot of homework to be done when you are going to understand Genesis 1. <laughs> All right? There's a lot that goes into Genesis 1. There's a lot that goes into God's plan and program for the ages that's far and beyond simply the human realm. You've got to look at the angelic realm. You've got to look at the, uh, the fall of Satan and how that affected things. Because with Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and 2, all of a sudden then you turn over to Genesis chapter 3 and you've got this serpent. Well, where did he come from? Who is this tempter? Who is this fallen creature? We understand that all of the angelic realm has already happened and that the fallen angels are already fallen creatures before man is even created. Alright, I mentioned Isaiah 14 a moment ago. Let's look at it. Isaiah 14. Verse 
in verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. He was a morning star. He was one of the choir. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend it to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. See, he was given dominion over the earth, but not satisfied with that particular realm. There were earthly angelic inhabitants and there were heavenly angelic inhabitants. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? This is, this is what we just read in, in Jeremiah 4.23. The destruction of that angelic earth. The shaking of kingdoms. The trembling of the earth, the throwing down of cities, who made the world like a wilderness and overthrew its cities, who did not allow his prisoners to go home. Okay? We don't have all the facts of the angelic warfare that resulted in the cataclysmic destruction of the earth. All we know is in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. <laughs> In between there is all the span of the angelic realm, all the span of the angelic fall, all the span of the angelic warfare, the destruction of the cities, the destruction of all these things. And we have glimpses of it. We don't have the whole picture. Who made the world like a wilderness and overthrew its cities. Who did not allow his prisoners to go home. Alright. Now, with all of that in our thinking, return with me back to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Because we have in the beginning. And yet we're recognizing very quickly that this is a beginning that precedes any other beginning that there could possibly be. The Genesis 1-1 beginning and everything else. That this is the first verse in all the Bible when it comes, if we're going to put it in the chronology because this precedes time itself. This is eternity past. In the beginning which was without beginning. In the beginning was the Word. We understand this to be God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Word was with God. We take that in context to be God the Father. And the unique relationship that the, Father, the Son and the Father have towards one another. And the Word was God. The absolute deity of the second person of Trinity. We don't deny deity. We understand the issues there of, of Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all being co-existent, co-eternal, co-equal members of the Godhead. This one, the same, was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. All right. Now, if you're going to start to look at creation, you can do that. But you have to do that through understanding the Word and how the Word relates to God the Father. All things came into being through Him. If they want to understand Adam and Eve and creation, fine. But understand that that's going to be understood through the work of the Word and how the Word pleases the Father. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And that would include the invisible realm as well, the angelic realm and things we're going to see here shortly. In Him was life, and the life was the light of 
Not of angels, not of animals, of men. The light of men. The realm of Anthropos. The realm of humanity. Just like in Genesis 1, the pinnacle of the Genesis 1 creation was, was man. Male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created them. Here, likewise, the realm of all created things is humanity. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, of Anthropos. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Alright, so we've given you so far, all we've given you so far is one point of study out of John 1. The Gospel of John begins with an in the beginning that precedes the Genesis 1-1, in the beginning. And we've given you several side trips so that you understand why there's so much homework involved in trying to track the events of the uh, of eternity past and of the, of the ages prior to Adam. The angelic dispensation, for example, takes a lot of work. Sub point A, the word, Ha-Lagos, is a title for God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Sub point A, the word, which is in the Greek, Ha-Lagos, is a title for God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is called here the word. In the Greek, it's Ha-Lagos. The, uh, I probably won't do this very well, my wrist the way it is. Ha-Lagos, right there. The definite article Ha, it's just an Omicron and a short O, Ah sound, but it does have the rough breather, so it's H-O, Ha. And then Logos, Lambda, Omicron, Gamma, Omicron, Sigma, L-O-G-O-S. The accent is on the first Omicron, Ha, Logos. It's a title for God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the most important titles for him is God many. The Father has many. The Son has many. But word is one of the most important because a word communicates. I might have thoughts. I might have ideas. I might have a will. I might have a desire. But you will never know my thoughts, my, my will, my desire, my intentions, my purpose, my love, if I don't communicate it to you. Until I put it into words... You don't know what I'm thinking. Okay? Now, of course, there's nonverbal ways to communicate, but you, you understand what I'm saying. If, if my purpose and intention and will and desire and love, if I'm going to communicate any of that to you, I have to put it into words. See? At whatever point of time I decided I wanted to marry Sharon, I had to, I had to put that into words. <laughs> right? I had a purpose. I had intentions. I had a will and desire to marry Sharon, but in order to, to let that be known, I had to put it into words. Something along the lines of, you know, will you marry me? Or words to that effect. <laughs> Alright? Some people get more dramatic about it, and they get more clever about how they get that across, but effectively what you're trying to communicate is, you know, will you marry me? Now, if we think about the Father who has a will, who has a purpose, who has love, who has a plan. But if he's going to relate that across to man, how is he going to do so? He has to communicate it. And the member of Trinity that reveals the mind of the Father is the Son. Very important. We're going to gear up for verse 18 of this passage. No one has seen God at any time. That's the Father. The only begotten God. 
That's the Son, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained Him. See, the role of the Son is to manifest the Father, to communicate the Father, to explain the Father. In fact, the word explain there is our word to exegete. It means nitty-gritty detail. It's like the hard work that a pastor does when he reads the original languages and he, and he translates from the original text and he, and he exegetes it and puts it into English in a manner that communicates to us today. That's called exegesis. We get the word exegesis from that word there in verse 18. God the Son exegetes the Father. He exegetes the Father. I'm going to sneeze. I'm not going to sneeze. All right. I hope when I come back from uh, the Philippines that you're done with this cedar thing. It kills me every year. All right. But the Word communicates. The Word reveals. The Word makes clear. And that's what Jesus Christ is here. He is the Word. Halagos. All right. Secondly, the Word was. Point B. Was. It says, in the beginning, was the Word. And was is very important. Was. Because it's in the imperfect tense. It's in the imperfect tense. That's continuous action in past time. Continuous action in past time. The Greek is ain, the particle ain. It expresses continuous action in the past, reflecting the eternal nature of God the Son. In the beginning, continuously, eternally, was the Word. It's not just a simple aorist. It's not just a simple past tense that indicates, okay, he was there at a point of time. But he was continuously there. In the beginning, he continuously was. In the beginning, he continuously was. The language of this verse communicates eternity, communicates that continuous uh, action in the past reflecting the eternal nature of God the Son continuously was. If we're, if we're going to talk about where you might have been in the past, well, we've got to put boundaries on it because you weren't always there. You know, if we, if we come back tonight and we talk about the people who were here this morning... Well, I could talk about all of you. And I could say, well, you know, surely was in Bible class this morning. But she wasn't eternally in Bible class this morning. There were, you know, she walked in at some point in time. <laughs> you know, she came in from the prayer meeting. And then after that, she was there. And then she left when it was over. Okay? It's just, well, we have time boundaries because of our finite nature. <laughs> we can only be at one place at a time and we have to arrive at a, at a point of time and so forth. But this verse is not dealing with boundaries. This verse is dealing with eternity past in the beginning. Looking back to eternity past, continuously throughout the beginning was the Word. Now, there's three statements that are made here. The statement of being, or existence, in the beginning was the Word. The statement of relationship the word was with God and then the statement of deity or equality the word was God there's three separate statements here and under B I'm going to give you three sub points now sub point one 
his work was before the face of God the Father. His work was with, that is, before the face of God the Father. His work was with, that is, before the face of God the Father. The preposition with can be as general as you can imagine. In the English language, the Greek, the Hebrew, any language, with could be very general or it could be very specific. But the idea of before the face of, meaning in the immediate presence, under the direct observation, in face-to-face fellowship. You ever go with somebody to some place and you're not really with them, but you're with them? <laughs> you know? Well, I went with so-and-so, but I'm not really with so-and-so. I mean, we happen to be co-located in the same place, but we're not really together. All right? Um, this verse is expressing the intimacy. It's expressing the direct face-to-face relationship. And when we come back to Proverbs 8, we'll see this more directly. We're going to see the relationship of the Father and the Son for all eternity in a direct face-to-face relationship of love and respect that they have for one another. Sub point two, his very essence as God. His very essence as God is described by that final phrase, the word was God. Well, all the false religions, all of the cults, all of the the quasi-Christian religions that are out there, all deny the deity of Jesus Christ. One way or the other. Jehovah's Witnesses reject the deity of Jesus Christ, that He was in the beginning with God, that He was God, that He became God at some point because of His obedience. Mormons teach the same thing. In fact, they teach that God the Father Himself had been a man at one point in time before He became God. And then His Son was a man before He became God. And all the faithful, devout Mormon men that are living this world today can become gods at some point down the road. See, only the men, of course. You ladies are left out. (laughs) You don't get to become gods in the Mormon church. Okay? You do get to heaven, though, of course, if you help your husbands become gods. (laughs) Different things there. Oh, the Mormon teaching is so evil. The deity of God the Son is vital to understand that what we have here is a relationship among between the members of Trinity. And we have clearly defined roles between Father and Son. And these are spelled out for us in this first chapter of John chapter 1. Then we get to verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. Now, didn't they just say that in verse 1? Why is this repeated in verse 2? Because what we have under sub point 3 now is His unique position before God the Father. This one was in the beginning with God. This one, his unique position before God the Father. This one. You can take that pronoun he in verse 2 and render it this one. This one was in the beginning with God. His unique position before God the Father. Now, this doesn't deny the eternal life of the Holy Spirit. This does not deny the deity of the Holy Spirit or the role of the Holy Spirit. But what this is highlighting is the unique 
position of the Son before the face of the Father. In harmony, in work, in love. This one was in the beginning with God. If, if, if I use the language of this one, I'm excluding everything else. Okay? There may be a dozen pens in this room, but if I'm referring to this one, then I have excluded every other pen in this room. The pen you have in your hand, the pen in your pocket, the pen in your purse, the pen back there on the recording desk, this other pen in my pocket, whatever. If I'm referring to this one, then this is the one that I'm dealing with. This is the special one. This is the one that's set apart. This is the one that's unlike anything else. It's this one. And it's what verse 2 is dealing with. This one was in the beginning with God. It is this one. It's the Word. It's God the Son. This is the centerpiece of creation. This is what we're dealing with as it unfolds throughout the Gospel of John, especially uh, the, the statement of purpose there in, in uh, verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory, glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Not to minimize the Holy Spirit, of course. He is God. He was in the beginning with God. He is deity and all of that. But the Holy Spirit was not begotten. The Word was begotten. The only begotten Son of God. The one that was sent forth to reveal the Father by becoming flesh. The, uh, we're going we're to be stressing this throughout the, the Life of Christ series. So just anticipate. Obviously, the humanity and the work that He did on earth is kind of the, the focus of what we're dealing with as we look through the Gospels. But... We've got to understand. The Pharisees, you know, before Abraham was, I am, they had a big problem with that. <laughs> they tried to stone him when he said that. All right? Accused him of blasphemy. But his pre incarnate existence and deity and the eternal life of Christ, we've got to have a handle on that so we can understand what he did. Why he could go to the cross, qualified to do so. These things then become very important. Point C. God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, Halagos, was the primary member of Trinity to accomplish the creation. God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, Halagos, was the primary member of Trinity to accomplish the creation. Now we can find other roles that the Father had. We can find other roles that the Holy Spirit had. Indeed, all three members of Trinity function in one way or another as pertains to the creation. But the Son was the primary agent the primary one doing the work. The Father developed the plan. He designed the, the, the blueprints. We're going to see that. But the, but the Son actually went through and fulfilled the work according to the Father's design. The Holy Spirit had a role as well according to Genesis 1-3. The Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the deep. The primary member of Trinity to accomplish the creation. Verse 3 here says, All things came into being through Him. Through Him. Through Him. He's the primary agent. The Father designed it, but He used the Son to get it done. It'd be like if you build a house, but 
if you're not the one actually pounding the nails, then you did it through somebody else. <laughs> you know, you got a bank to finance it. You got a, a builder to build it. You can say you built it because you know you assumed responsibility for its construction. You assumed responsibility for the debt and whatever else involved in financing it. You can say I built the house. You can move into the house that you built. But you did it through other agencies. You had a, a lender of some sort that, that financed that paid it. Now you're paying it back over the next 30 years. And you had a contractor, a builder of some sort, that actually pounded the nails and, and put it up. So we can, we can say the Father created, but through the Son. If we can understand it in these terms, maybe that will help us. Because it's through Him. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Very important statement. If it exists, if it has come into being, then it came into being through the agency of Jesus Christ, God the Son. Only things then being accepted are God Himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the only beings in the universe that did not come into being, because they always were. But everything else that had a beginning, that came into being, everything else that, that at one point did not exist and then existed, uh, existed, came into existence because of the creative work of Jesus Christ. Uh, it's also stated in, as such in verse 10. Verse 9 says, The true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He actually entered into the realm of creation that he himself created and the world did not know him. Quite remarkable. Alright. Let's go over to Colossians 1 then in our time remaining look at Colossians chapter 1. <coughs> Colossians chapter 1. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Verse 15 says, He. Reference to that is Christ. Verse 13, For He, the Father, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His, the Father's beloved Son. So the last stated person or being is the Son in verse 13. In whom, in Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, that's still the Son, is the image of the invisible God. That's the Father. It would be very important for us to understand when we get to John 1.18 that how it says no man has seen God at any time. That's reference to the Father. That's reference to the invisible Father who dwells in unapproachable light. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to understand what that is. That He has the right of firstborn. And we'll understand why He has the right of firstborn. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. See, this is a, a snapshot of creation that does a much better job than Genesis 1.1 and Genesis 1.2. Okay? Because in Genesis 1, what we have in the six-day account is we have the creation of things on earth. <laughs> the creation of things visible. The things in heaven aren't looked at in Genesis 1. The angelic realm isn't dealt with in Genesis 1. The invisible things aren't dealt with in Genesis 1. Thrones and dominions aren't addressed. Rulers and authorities aren't addressed in Genesis 1. 
You can look at light. You can look at firmament. You can look at sun and moon. You can look at animals, plants, fish, creepy crawly things, man. Go through the six days of Genesis 1 and show me where are the angels made. You can't. Because Genesis 1 is focused on the realm of humanity and restoring the earth to conditions where man can be created and given stewardship. But this is a view of creation here that goes very well with the, with the John 1 passage that shows us how all things that came into existence came into existence through him. The firstborn of all creation, all things, both in the heavens and on earth. See, things are created in the heavens. In the beginning, God created the heavens. And these invisible, to us, invisible angelic realm were created to occupy the heavens. And they gathered around and they saw the creation of the earth and they celebrated. Both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him. And the very, most important, the three last words of verse 16, and for Him and for Him. Ultimately, everything that the Father has designed and everything that the Father has done has been for the maximum glorification of Jesus Christ. And that includes creation. It includes redemption. It includes everything else that's a part of the Father's plan. It's for the Son. It's for the Son. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. And when you start to think of all the things God created, the heavens, the angels, the earth, the restored earth, man. And is that the end? Some 6,000 years, let's see, 4,000 years after Adam and Eve, a whole new realm of creation came into existence on the day of Pentecost, and that's called the church. Church didn't exist prior to Pentecost. Church did not exist in the Old Testament. Church did not exist prior to Acts chapter 2. This is now a whole new creation. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. The primacy of Jesus Christ. We have got to understand these issues as we proceed through the life of Christ steady, we're going to miss the mark. We'll call, if, we, if, we, if we neglect the deity, the pre, pre-incarnate deity, if we neglect the eternal glory, if we neglect the purpose of the Father, then we're going to have an incomplete view of the life of Christ. We'll have a study on the Gospels that will basically be a biography of the earthly ministry of Christ. And uh, there'll be profit from it, don't get me wrong, but it's going to fall short because it's going to fail to see where those 34, 35 years, however long he lived, it's going to, it's going to fail to see how that first advent uh, fit within the, the overall plan of God uh, for, for his son, for Jesus Christ. That includes creation. That includes first advent. That includes second advent. That includes fullness of times. I think by the time we get done with this whole thing, we're going to understand that maybe we went into this Life of Christ series thinking, okay, it's going to be First Advent, but First Advent is, is merely a piece of a much larger puzzle that focuses on the glory of Christ for all eternity. All right? So, we will come back to this, not next week, not the week after, but three weeks. you got a two-week break. 
should be plenty of time to ponder eternity past. <laughs> All right. And we will come back to these concepts again in three weeks' time. Appreciate your prayers over the next couple of weeks. Let's close in prayer. Father, we do thank you for the privilege and blessing we have to study the living and abiding Word of God. And I thank you for opening our mind to understand eternal matters. I thank you, Father, that uh, as we focus in on the glory of Christ, we can identify and recognize the celebrity of the universe, the Son in whom you are well pleased, the source for every blessing we have. Because, Father, our heavenly blessings are in Christ, and we have no blessing apart from Christ. So, Father, we pray that you would continue to work in us to understand what you are accomplishing, and I pray that you would motivate us to do the same. Help us today to glorify Christ. Help us to bless Christ. Help us to uh, provide glory for Christ in everything that we do, everything that we say, everything that we think, and especially help us to do so by providing a blessing and encouragement to our fellow brothers and sisters who are in Christ. To the least of these that we've done, Father, so too we have done to Christ. And and I pray that you would motivate us to love one another and uh, to to bear one another's burdens. Uh, For in so doing, Father, do we exalt and magnify our Savior. And we thank you in his most precious and holy name. Amen.